Welcome to Trafe, a debatably Jewish podcast. So to start off the episode, I just wanted to thank our listeners for sending in our first batch of mail. It wasn't hate mail. It was, in fact, positive and constructive. Yeah. And uh, one thing that through the conversations we had with some listeners came to our attention is that the medium of podcasting might not be super familiar to a lot of folks who are used to following radio shows on the internet. And so we just wanted to talk a little bit about the ways that you can interact with the show that might be easier than going to SoundCloud every week or searching the show in Google every week. The easiest way to get the podcast is to go into the iTunes store and click subscribe. Yeah, and if you have a smartphone, you can download a podcast app, which takes care of this all for you. Alternatively, you can send us an email, trafepodcast at gmail.com, and David will walk you through step-by-step <laughs> as to how to access our show. Uh, we'll post in the show notes with some instructions so that doesn't have to happen. So it was a big week for Eastern European Jewish food. Barack Obama spoke about bagels in the Jewish Daily Forward. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was uh, it was very heavily hyped, the interview between the Forward and uh, Obama. Yeah. It was pretty clear that he was aiming to address the Iran deal. So wait, did you read the interview? I, I, I did. Like the entire interview? Uh, parts of the interview. <laughs> yeah, I think that's more accurate. I focused pretty heavily on the food section. Um, Barack Obama did what he does best and makes people like him. He explained that his favorite bagel is Poppy. Interesting. And when asked about what he liked on his bagel, I'm just going to read a quote here because I can't really do it any better. He said he likes just a schmear. Locks and capers are okay, but generally just your basic schmear. Um, so what's your takeaway from this, Sam? My takeaway is that he pandered to me very well. So you'd say that after reading that, you liked him more as a Jewish person. 100%. Be more inclined to vote for him. 100%. Or, yeah. Well, I think How that, about you? Um, not after that, but to be honest, uh, during part of the election campaign in the second term, I was having dreams where we were hanging out. Really? Yeah, I was highly susceptible. Would you like to elaborate in any way? Um, I would just be in average everyday situations and Barack Obama would be there as my best bud. Wow. Um, so I, there's probably a good seg to make here, but I'm not going to do it. Do you, did you read the Hillary Clinton email uh, trove? Yeah, I've been reading about it. I haven't really had enough interest to parse through the emails. Why have you been reading about it? Yeah, well, I mean, this is where we differ, clearly. There was a fantastic email that Hillary wrote to a, a staffer with the subject line gefilte fish. And the content of the email was a simple, where are we at on this? There's no explanation. Zero explanation. So wait, you read through all of Hillary Clinton's emails looking for something that was related to gefilte fish and found it? Unfortunately, it was not me. It was the Washington Post who probably ripped it off people on Twitter. And why was someone interested in her perspective on a shipment of carp? Well, I mean, I think someone was trying to use her influence to ensure that a certain tariff wasn't placed on the shipment of fish from Illinois to Israel. All right. I think that's enough Eastern European Jew food talk for the week. Uh, who do we have on the show today? So today we have Erica Davis on the show. Erica runs the blog Black Gay and Jewish and is also a board member of the Jewish Multiracial Network. She'll be talking a bit about the work that she does through that network. <laughs> So lately in the Jewish press, there's been a lot of attention paid to a Montrealer named Steve Amann. And Steve Amann has started an organization that claims to have rescued 128 Yazidi and Christian women from ISIS. Now, before getting into the details of this, two important points to reference. Every single time his name is written, the Jewish press writes Montreal businessman. 
they somehow cannot seem to find any other descriptor. They also consistently hail him as the reincarnation of Oscar Schindler. Yeah, almost every headline about him in the Jewish press actually had in quotations the phrase, the Jewish Schindler. David, for people who are listening who didn't go to a Jewish school and learn about the Holocaust for 15 consecutive years, could you possibly describe who Schindler was? Well, Oscar Schindler was immortalized in the Steven Spielberg film Schindler's List, and he is, I believe, a businessman who was able to use his influence and wealth to essentially buy the freedom of a select amount of Jews during the Holocaust. But anyway, Steve Maman has started a GoFundMe page as a part of the broader campaigning he's doing for this organization. But his GoFundMe page actually disappeared a few weeks ago after the RINJ, or Rape is No Joke Foundation, filed a complaint saying that they had reason to believe that his organization was actually financing the sex trade by buying the freedom of these Yazidi individuals. The, the more damning critiques are coming from the broader Yazidi community. There is a letter that was written and published in Vice News issued to Steve Maman. It's actually worth checking out. People should look at it. Uh, we'll put it in the show notes. But the general premise was that his organization called the Liberation of Christian and Yazidi Children of Iraq Project should stop taking donations. And we should add that it was somewhere in the vicinity of $600,000 when they left GoFundMe. They should stop taking donations until they prove the work they're doing. Yeah, in that same Vice article, they interviewed a Yazidi human rights activist who, as a part of his work, maintains a database of Yazidis who are kidnapped. He said, we have a list of everyone who's been liberated, what time, date, from where, the last area they were, who the first person was to make contact with them. We have all the documents. Not apparently mentioned my man's group or those who work for him. Yeah, there's a similar critique that comes from a Yazidi member of the Iraqi parliament, Vian Dakil who basically says that she hasn't met any girls who have told her that they escaped as a result of him. So there are basically just a lot of question marks around this guy's organization, and he basically has hunkered down in response to them. Yeah, the letter was specifically asking for him to make clear to a series of Yazidi leaders that what he was doing is real, and to just disclose some of the names, some evidence that the organization is actually doing what they claim to be doing. And in response, Steve Maman has essentially started a campaign of attacking the Yazidi community for even challenging him at all. Now, neither of us are experts on this subject, but I do think that Maman's response is important. I think how he relates to Yazidi groups, both within the region and in North America, is important. And it's disappointing that that is the approach that he's taken. The other large thing that is of interest to the podcast is the fact that the Jewish media has covered it in a deeply biased way. Yeah, there was a, a Q&A with him in the uh, Canadian Jewish News that came off as extremely glowing for all the work that he's doing. There was very little challenging him. There was, a, there was an article that acknowledged the fact that he is being challenged, but it mostly just gave him a forum to attack the groups that are suggesting he should contact them. And it seems to me like it's just part of this white liberal rescue fantasy that's itself mired in this civilizational discourse that sees Muslim people, Arab people on one end of it who are somehow these barbarians that need to be controlled by this enlightened democratic white West, and that he is this hero in this narrative that is jumping in and saving these innocents from these barbarians. And I, I think that this rescue fantasy doesn't really have a lot of room for consultation with people who are directly affected by this. And again, we're external to the Yazidi community, and we don't know if the people who wrote this letter are representative of many people within the Yazidi community. But we do know that Steve Maman's response is terrible. And we do know that his work and the way that he's described it falls very dangerously into the civilizational discourse that we've been talking about before. And 
The Jewish media ought to be much more critical when talking about these issues and a lot more critical when bringing him in to respond to these issues. We're here again to break a promise that we made two weeks ago about not engaging with the Canadian election. We've kind of been pushed into a corner, and this is the topic that is ruling the day in the Jewish press in Canada. Yeah, so in the wake of the issue regarding Mark Adler, which we talked about last show, he's a conservative MP who was listing his credentials inaccurately as the first elected descendant of a Holocaust survivor in the Canadian Parliament. This was followed in the Jewish press by extensive coverage of the Jewish Defense League picketing a home in Forest Hill. It's a very wealthy area in Toronto as a result of a prominent member within the Jewish community having a fundraiser for the Liberal Party. The JDL saw this as a very important moment. There were all of these mass emails sent out about weird intra-community conspiracy theories. And this is very different from the usual behavior of the Jewish Defense League or other far-right groups. The Jewish Defense League tends to be focused on attacking people who they perceive to be threats to the Jewish community. In their eyes, pretty much anyone who is Muslim, anyone who is Arab, anyone who does any Palestinian solidarity work. In this instance, their energies have been diverted to electoral partisan politics, and they're attacking people who are supporters of a pro-Zionist party, which is the Canadian Liberal Party. There's this certain kind of response happening from the the Jewish establishment, from the liberal Jewish establishment, that are expressing a little bit of concern around the tone of the discussion around these elections. It's a kind of respectability politics. It's a policing along small L liberal lines of the way that we're talking about these elections. Yeah, and so the wake of all of this coverage and the discussions going on within the Jewish community, uh, Jonathan Kay, the previous editor of the National Post, who's been now reborn as a Canadian liberal and inherited editorial control of the Walrus, published a piece called Jew v. Jew v. Jew v. Jew v. Jew that was an email correspondence he had with several influential people within and outside of the Jewish community. There are a lot of very strange things going on in this piece. And the presence of Barbara Kay, I think, is the one that, while maybe not the strangest, is the most overwhelming and overt. Everything that she says in this article seems to be coming from a different world from everyone else who is participating in this discussion. And her relationship with her son seems to be erased from the correspondence completely. So before going any further, we should list the other members besides the extended Kay family. Yoni Goldstein... Joseph Rosen, Marnie Supkoff, and Andrew Cohen. So the way that the article is structured is that John Kay poses questions through this email exchange to the group of Jewish journalists that he has assembled, and they all respond to what they decide they want to respond to. Yes, it results in a very confusing back and forth. There are a few themes that were hit by most of the participants, and one of the big ones is the tenor of the conversation that's emerging in the Jewish community. Everybody's very concerned about the tone of the conversation. Things are getting too out of hand. Things are getting too militant. One person who's not concerned about that is Barbara Kay. <laughs> yeah, but I think, I think this whole thing about the tone of the conversation is kind of ridiculous because there's very little diversion from the focus on electoral politics. I forget which participant said this, but it was one of the two who are more left-leaning. They said that this current conversation that's happening in the Jewish community that are alarming even the Jewish community leaders is actually an absurd endgame of a much longer process where the debate over three Zionist parties 
is getting to the point where people are calling each other Hitler for preferring one over the other, where in fact that emerges from a discourse that's taken hold within the Jewish community for some time. Mm. Unfortunately, the kind of progressive voice in this discussion is just asking us for a status quo where all three parties support Israel, but we're not explicit about it. Yeah, a lot of the narrative of the conversation is why does there have to be a super Zionism reflected in the conservatives? Can't there be a regular Zionism where you don't have to be Likud? And the range of this discussion is so narrow, especially when talking about harkening back to a time of quote unquote civility or disagreements and dissent within the Jewish community. Well, within this discussion, there's no one who is actually an anti-Zionist speaking. Everyone agrees that the state of Israel is a great thing and should persist. The farthest left dissenting voice is someone who very cautiously suggests that perhaps the occupation is a bad thing for Israel. But Sam, reading through it, were there things that you felt like were more glaringly messed up than usual? I, well, I mean, I think everything besides Barbara Kay was par for the course, mm. right? And even Barbara Kay was par for the course, but par for a different course. Like she's par for the JDL, Abigail, Ask Abigail course. And the rest of it just felt pretty... I mean, it felt like the same as what we've seen in the CJN. But why uh, do you why do you think that she was included? I don't understand her place in this discussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why I was asking. Yeah, I mean, beyond the, again, I I counsel anyone who reads this to skip her sections because I don't really think there's anything valuable other than intense rhetoric. But yeah, I'm not really sure why what what value she adds other than just like flame throwing racism. My take is that I think that he felt that if he didn't include her then the conversation would have been perceived by the Jewish community as a liberal analysis of mm. what's going on. And that she's there so that it, that it comes across as a mainstream Jewish discussion. Huh. Because I think without the virulent racism and the far-right politics, you can't have a conversation within the Jewish community right now that's considered mainstream. So was there anything that stood out for you or is there anything here that you want to touch on? I don't know. I think... What stood out for me were actual moments of what seemed like clarity from people who I would never expect it from, like hearing things from Jonathan Kay that I actually agreed with at times, and hearing things from the editor of the Canadian Jewish News, who that really surprised me, or people talking about the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs as being functionally a shill for the conservative government. Like there's all these things that are very clear to us, but we never hear talked about in the Jewish press, in mainstream Jewish conversation. You have a bunch of people from the Jewish mainstream who are saying this in the walrus. Yeah, I guess my concern, and I, I, it's not really a concern, I think is what the outcome would be, but their alternative would be something that we maybe, some mature version of 15 years ago, right? Like that's the, the concern is that it's not a more diffused set of Jewish community organizing. It's mm-hmm. it's a return to the more liberal, small L, whatever, yeah, iteration like, of it. Like maybe the presence of Barbara Kay was actually clouding the way that we are engaging with this article and that the way we should be responding to this is as a liberal argument for restoring what once was in the Jewish community, a status quo that was more sustainable, a more sustainable support of Israel, a more sustainable occupation. And that is actually being disguised by Barbara Kay here. In a way that I think worked on me. Yeah. That I actually, because of her presence, would read it and see these moments of clarity and think, oh, that's very surprising to be here. And I think that because it's so rare to see any dissent at all from the organizations that currently control the Jewish community, when they do come out and they do present themselves, 
that seduction is very powerful mm. because it, there's no precedent for it in the last almost 10 years now. It's dangerous to be seduced by the possibilities of wrangling the liberal left of the Jewish community in their distaste for the conservative party and mm. their distaste for a center for Israel and Jewish affairs. So to other folks listening, do not be seduced. It is a trap. For anyone still listening, we're at this point in the show where we are going to do the Shkoyach segment. And it's a special Shkoyach this week because you know what time of year it is. We're rounding the corner to the yearly celebration of Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the yearly fast day where Jewish people atone for the sins they committed all year and hope not to be written into God's book of damnation. That is true. And it's actually interesting that you bring this up because that actually is the subject of my Shkoyach. My Shkoyach goes to a group of unnamed people in Montreal who organized the only Yom Kippur ball in the city in 1905. So once again, for or for the second episode in a row, my shkoyach goes to an unnamed group of people in the historical past. <laughs> but the Yom Kippur ball is something that happened across North America and Western Europe at the turn of the 20th century. I will preface this by saying it's something that we should be cautious of glamorizing, but I think is relevant to properly contextualize. So... Yom Kippur, like David mentioned in his eloquent introduction, is a fast day. And this idea started in London in the East End in the 1880s, where a group of radical Jews, particularly anarchists, they decided that they wanted to confront the religious power structure by organizing a demonstration, by having a feast, by very much kind of challenging the tone and activities of the day. And so... This repeated itself in New York uh, during the, 18, the late 1880s and the early 19, 1890s. After New York, Philadelphia, Boston, and Chicago had their own Yom Kippur balls, various activists in Montreal in 1905 organized one of their own. Have you read anything about that specific ball? Yeah, I found it in a book written by Rebecca Margolis called Jewish Roots, Canadian Soil. And Margolis talks about the ways in which the Montreal event was different than other ones because there were no anarchist collectives or anarchist spaces to really foster this organizing. So it happened on St. Catherine in this place called St. Joseph's Hall. There were successive mobs of people who tried to shut it down. There was one fellow named Harry Rabinovich who was arrested for clocking Benjamin Joffe in the forehead, which is just a weird place to punch someone. What I've read about the ones that happened in the UK, it seemed like actually street balls were a big part of this, where they would actually bait the Orthodox Jews going to shul and invite them to come to the ball mm. and dance with them and eat ham sandwiches and uh, people just get in fights in the street. Yeah. One of the interesting things about this for me from an analytical standpoint is that it also starts to signal the relationship between the institutional Jewish community and the state. So particularly in the case of New York, mm. you had the New York Jewish establishment calling the police to shut down the events on successive in, in successive years. It didn't happen here. It just seems like it was a it was a brawl that got broken up by the police, but it kind of shows that shift taking place. Mm. Without glamorizing this history, it's an important thing to remember. When we talk about the difference between today and then, I don't know if the institutional Jewish community is still so embedded with the religious elite. I think it's a huge difference today. Uh, if people were to walk around Hampstead during Yom Kippur today, it would be a little more complicated, I think. Yeah, I think I think I because I've thought about the Yom Kippur balls a lot over the last few years. And, and I, I think I've actually joked with some people about having another one trying to stage it, but it just makes very little sense, I think, in our context because the people who 
are most embedded in the uh, institutional Jewish community and the power structure's relationship to the state tend to actually not be religious. And it that's not actually an effective way at challenging the power that they hold. If anything, it would just be an attack against religion for its own sake, Yeah, uh, which isn't something that I'm particularly interested in doing. But to a younger version of myself, the Yom Kippur balls were incredibly inspiring. To people who feel like younger versions of David, two great books to read. Like I mentioned before, Rebecca Margolis's Jewish Roots, Canadian Soil, but also Kenyon Zimmer's Immigrants Against the State. It's a great book about primarily Italian and Yiddish anarchists in the Americas at the turn of the 20th century. So do you have an, an equally arcane uh, historical shkoyach for us today? Um, unfortunately not. So the shkoyach I have for this week is much more topical. It actually goes out to Nicola Fond, who's a reporter at the Illinois News Gazette, for her reporting on a series of instances of vandalism outside of the uh, Illinois Chabad Center on the campus of the University of Illinois. Fair enough. Please expand on what Nicole Lafond wrote about. Um, so there was an instance where someone had clearly gone to this very large menorah that's outside the Chabad Center. and David, what is a menorah? Um, a menorah is kind of a large candelabra of sorts with nine different candles at the top. And it's part of a ritual of commemorating a failed genocide against the Jewish people. When the Jewish temple was actually destroyed, the menorah that was present within the temple, which was central to a lot of Jewish ritual, it was an oil-based candelabra. And so the fable goes there was only enough oil to last for three days. You're, but, you're the expert. Uh, not anymore. I've repressed most of this information. But there was only enough oil to last for a very small period of time. And miraculously, it lasted for a very long period of time. In fact, I believe nine days. Definitely nine days. Uh, this is horrible. I apologize to uh, my family. I apologize to uh, everyone that had me in the yeshiva and taught me these things. Yeah, they invested a lot of time and energy. In yeah, that's a lot of money down the drain. Uh, so anyway... You'll often see this, see menorahs in front of Chabad or Lubavitch institutions or a particular sect of Hasidic Judaism that does a lot of outreach. So they're on college campuses in America. They drive around. Anyway, someone went up to this and knocked it down. And they did it single-handedly in a way that seemed as though they just kicked it until it fell down. <laughs> and this obviously raised a lot of ire within the community. People are very concerned. Some people are talking about it as a hate crime. And through the reporting of Nicola Fond, we were able to follow the developments of what was actually happening in Illinois okay. and see what was going on here. And it turned out that there was a security video that named the perpetrator of this as someone named Matt Christie. He's a 20-year-old Parkland College student. But the police say that he did not do it for religious reasons. They, they, said, <laughs> they said, we're not classifying this as a hate crime. Uh, they said it was more of him wanting to collect an artifact <laughs> as opposed to targeting anyone. Wow. Now, obviously, this raises the question of why he'd want to collect such a particular artifact. Yes, and, and, and I just think I would like to point out this is an argument used by um, imperialists <laughs> for hundreds of years. Well, it seems as though the story is that Max was drinking with friends at a campus bar that evening. Mm -hmm. And at around 5 or 6 a.m. when he was walking to buy cigarettes, he spotted the menorah outside the center. And he knew it was a Jewish symbol, but he didn't know what it was called. And he decided that he wanted to take it to give to a Jewish friend, according to the police. Well, the other thing I should mention is that police spoke with Max's Jewish friend, who confirmed the two had talked about what he had done. 
Wow, that's amazing. Is is there any reference on who the Jewish friend is, or it's just Christie's Jewish friend? The police, ref- the police, and the article refer only to Christie's Jewish friend. Wow. Um, that does and, not sound real at all. And the police also say that as soon as he knocked it over, he realized it was wrong and walked away. So he didn't even bring it to his Jewish friend. An interesting development, though, is that they're going to be fining him for the damage, which is estimated around $2,200. Okay. Um, but this isn't the first time that this menorah was vandalized. This is actually the second time in the last four months that this has happened. Whoa. And the last time this happened, they raised $7,500 to build a stronger steel replacement. Which clearly didn't work mysteriously after it was damaged a stranger fixed the original menorah and put it back up in the same spot and the rabbi said that they had no idea who it was and they scrapped the idea of building a new structure oh maybe it was the jewish friend that that christie was but as a result it was able to be destroyed once again and uh, now they are they are doubling down their conviction to build the new structure are they asking for more money or they're going to use the money that they already received it doesn't seem like they're asking for more money cuz they have almost $8,000 but it seems as though they're still fining him the $2200 worth of damage max christie i i mean to be honest i just don't this story clearly doesn't add up like he was just drunk and probably destroyed it i the whole bringing to his friend the whole the, the but sam the police say that they called his jewish friend and she confirmed the story i mean the show is no no friend of the cops, let's be honest here. Yeah, maybe the cops themselves are in on the white supremacist order of the community and are letting this kid go. To be honest, I just think he's a drunk guy. I mean, he was a drunk guy. And no, no. in his drunken state, saw this Jewish thing. And, and wanted to take it down. And wanted to give it to his Jewish friend, which is a loving gesture. And everyone in the community can understand. And he was just, you know, a young drunk man and boys will be boys. Boys will be boys. That's weird. Um, but here's the other hold thing. Up. They keep referring to it as a menorah, but I thought we were supposed to call it a Hanukkah. Because I thought the only menorah was in the temple. And everything that symbolizes the menorah is called a Hanukkah. Seems like the money that was spent on your Jewish education is paying off. Well, I'm not sure. Again, I, I've repressed a lot of these memories. But If uh, there are any religious listeners? If anyone knows the answer to this, please write in. I know I could probably spend about 10 minutes finding the answer to this on Wikipedia, but I'm actually really busy this week, and I'm not going to have an opportunity to. But if this is the case, it means Nicola Fawn's reporting might actually not be Shkoyach worthy. So Shkoyach mm. with an addendum. Yes. The addendum is if uh, she got this wrong, we'll have to revoke it next week. Also, in the slight chance that the, quote, Jewish friend of this article is listening— please get in touch. It would definitely make our day. So there's been some long overdue discussion lately in the Jewish press about the ways black Jews and other Jews of color experience marginalization within the Jewish community. Here to discuss this with us in more depth is Erica Davis, who runs the blog Black, Gay, and Jewish and is a board member of the Jewish Multiracial Network. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us, Erica. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, we were, or I was just wondering if you could start with a little bit of a explanation of the history of the Jewish multiracial network, and for our listeners who are unfamiliar, talk a little bit about the work that's that the group's been doing. Yeah, of course, of course. So, um, the Jewish multiracial network is an organization that's found was founded around. 1997-1998. And it was founded by a group of parents who sort of very honestly looked around their community, looked at their family makeups, whether they'd adopted children of color or were um, thinking about adopting children of color, just sort of realized that they needed to create a support network for their families and families that looked like them, and that there wasn't really a place or a space 
for families to discuss like the dual identities of being both Jewish and white Jews, to be very honest, and uh, how raising Jewish children of color would sort of shape their experience. So the organization started as just that. We basically just hosted an annual retreat. And that sounds terrible. It's not just a retreat, but we basically, our work was focused on an annual retreat that brought families together. So it allowed a space for the parents to have conversations about their lives and things that were difficult in their lives and things that they could do to um, make their communities more inclusive. And it was also a really great space for these Jewish children of color who were very young at the time and now are teenagers, which is a little bizarre, to see each other in a Jewish space doing Jewish things. Sort of as the organization has grown and as, like I said, as those children have gotten older, the leadership has definitely shifted from a place of parents sort of wanting to make space for their children and their families to Jews of color really taking a more active role as those children are getting older, but as just adult Jews of color are coming together and working to create space and inclusivity within the Jewish community. I think that is probably a very long explanation of what JMN has been doing um, in the past. And uh, basically at this point, we are um, an organization, I think one of the few Jewish diversity organizations that is actually run by a Jewish person of color. And we are now focused on inclusion work and diversity work and diversity awareness in the Jewish community, um, not just from the point of view of you know, adopted Jews of color, but actually just sort of really delving into the history of Jewish diversity and racial and ethnic diversity within the Jewish community and uh, education. So how, how have you seen this work received by the broader Jewish community over the past uh, 18 years? Um, you know, I've only been part of JMN for about five years, so I can't say anything that happened before that. And myself, I am like a very proud convert to Judaism. I think it's always a complicated identity because I don't want it to seem like it's the only way that people can be both black and Jewish, but it is my story. So I've actually only been Jewish for four years and only a member of the Jewish multiracial network for about five years. And I think that there are definitely a lot of well-intentioned inclusivity and, and diversity within the Jewish community. And what JMN aims to do is to sort of shake up those ideas and those things that we've been doing as a community for 18 years, 20 years, 50 years, and really sort of reimagine them so that they're not just focuses around Martin Luther King Day, for instance, or Freedom Seders during Pesach. I think we really want to make sure that you know, Jewish diversity is not something that happens once a month or once a year, but it's that something that's sort of just part of the Jewish narrative. And I think overall, like to answer your question, how that has been received, I think it's it's an ongoing process. I think that the Jewish community for a long time has seen itself in one narrative and to try to change that narrative or to not necessarily even change it, but to sort of look at that narrative from a different perspective, I think takes time. And I think that it challenges people's identities. And I think that that's also really hard. Definitely an important one for folks to hear. Um, kind of tied into that, um, the president of the Jewish Multiracial Network, Chava Shervington, recently wrote an op-ed for the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, writing about how, mm-hmm. how exhausting the racism of the Orthodox Jewish community is for black Jews, and kind of urged yes. this reassessment of the Jewish community's perception of itself. Have you seen this taken up right. outside of the Orthodox community in any way? Um, you know, I think that if you are a non-Orthodox Jew like myself, I would like to say 
yes, but I, I think it is definitely a hard narrative to change. Um, and I think it's down to, like, I think Hava mentioned it in her article, language. You know, simply saying, you know, when our people came from Poland completely wipes out the identities of Jews whose origins were not in Eastern Europe. And when you think of just, you know, basic ways that Jews like to identify themselves as either Ashkenazi or Sephardi or now like Mizrahi and all that, when you are a rabbi and you say when our people left Eastern Europe, you're not acknowledging necessarily those different types of identities. And it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Like that rabbi's experience was bad. That was his family experience. But by using language as simple as that, it's also a little bit more complex because obviously we're not asking people to disregard their own histories. We're just asking them to think about things from a different perspective. You know, in in this sort of diversity work that I've been doing since before converting to Judaism and now as a, as a Jew, I think it's definitely, it makes sense to me. You know, I think when you think of the Jewish community and it's, decades and centuries and eons long experience of persecution, it definitely makes sense that Jews become insular and and sort of stick together and sort of cleave to one another because that was what you needed to do. Um, but we're just asking that, you know, the perspective of people's Jewish experience is seen through a multifaceted lens as opposed to just one perspective. You know, to say that our people have experienced um, lifetimes of, you know, persecution. I think that's definitely a more broad statement than when our people left Poland, for instance. Um, so I think it's just, I think it's definitely, it takes time. I don't think that rabbis are necessarily intentionally saying things like that and that it's necessarily problematic for a rabbi to say that, but it definitely does um, leave other people's perspectives out of the narrative when it's not thought of as a more, um, I guess, well-rounded historical interpretation of Jewish history. So shifting a bit from the realities of racism within the Jewish community, I want to ask, so August mm -hmm. 9th was the anniversary of Michael Brown's murder by St. Louis police. And over the past year, it seems like systemic violence and police murder of black people has become increasingly impossible for white people to deny. I mean, St. Louis police just yeah. murdered Mansour Balbay on the one-year anniversary of the same police force murdering Kajimu Powell. So in, in this context, have you seen a shift in the way the Jewish communities in the United States have engaged with the realities of systemic anti-Black racism? Um, I mean, I think I would like to say again, yes, but I think that's also hard to say, give a definitive answer to you. Like I know personally of Jews who are doing work in St. Louis right now, um, queer Jews, uh, queer Jews of color and queer Jews that are white people as well. But I think that the problem with, Racism is what you said. It's it's a it's a systemic racism that the Jewish community, unfortunately, is not immune to. I think that when you look at the history of racism in this in this country, specifically in the United States, it is in our very fabric. And I think that a lot of people will say that Jews have some sort of like immunity to racism because we've been persecuted. And I'm constantly told of Joshua Herschel marched with. Martin Luther King, and that therefore, for those reasons, Jews can't be racist. But I think that when certain Jews were able to become white-identified people, that they sort of historically, I think, sort of forgotten that. Um, I think that, you know, I think that there are definitely Jewish communities and Jews who are doing amazing work in the Black Lives Matter movement. Do I think that the Jewish community as a whole has sort of taken up arms um, 
in a way that they'd like to remember that we did uh, during the civil rights era, I would have to say no, because I don't think that every Jew in the 1950s either was like, yeah, I'm going to go march on Washington. Like historically, people did. Historically, Jews did help to form the NAACP. Historically, there were Jews who did that work, but did the entire Jewish community do that work? Probably not. <laughs> and like, I think the same holds true today. Are there Jews doing amazing work in the Black Lives Matter movement and combating racism, both within the Jewish community and outside of it? Yeah, for sure. I know of my personal friends who are, you know, getting arrested um, in St. Louis and doing that work. But do I think that the entire Jewish community is like under the banner of anti-racism work? I think the answer is definitely no. And also as to Ashkenazi Jewish people, I think it's important to mention to other Ashkenazi Jews who are listening to this, other white Jews listening to the program, that there's quite a bit that we can do to confront anti-Black racism within Jewish spaces and also outside of it. I know in Chava Sherrington's article, right. she outlined three basic steps that would make the Orthodox community much more welcoming for Black Jews and other Jews of color, but I think that this is pertinent for a lot of Jewish spaces in general. Um, she wrote about introducing more inclusive language to phase out derogatory speech and really confront where that's coming from and the history of it, to stop teaching children that outsiders to the community are beneath them, and to not quiz Jews of color about their conversion or origin or relationship to Jewishness in a way you wouldn't quiz uh, white Jews. But given right. these and other recommendations by Jews of color, have you seen the institutional Jewish community absorb anything like this to confront the Ashkenazi centrism pervasive in the community? Yes. The consistent thread is that it takes time. So I still, even though I feel like I'm at least in New York, when I was in New York, I felt like people knew who I was. I think it's a little bit harder now that I'm in uh, the Pacific Northwest. But I would still go into Jewish spaces and have my identity questioned. I even in progressive places, like queer, progressive, liberal, egal, minion, and you're sitting down and people are like, oh, so how are you Jewish? Or, oh, so you read Hebrew so well. It's up to each community to take it upon themselves to create change in that community. I don't think it's going to be something that's going to just automatically happen for the entire Jewish community. I don't think it's going to happen necessarily within the movements of the community. I think it really has to be a rabbi or community member or a board who says we want to do the work of making inclusion work and combat racism within our Jewish communities and within the communities that surround us. And I, that might not necessarily be everyone's thing. You know, I'm always shocked. You know, I was invited to speak last year uh, to give a sermon on Martin Luther King Day. And I challenged the community to seek the Jewish Multiracial Network out for inclusion work. And if they wanted to do more work in creating diverse spaces, because it was in that space that I was assumed to be a nanny by a 12-year-old child. It was in that space that security stopped me multiple times when I was converting there to make sure that I was okay to be in that space. And I've not heard from them since. <laughs> so I think that hard work to do. And I think it's a brave community that decides that they want to take up racism and inclusion work, not only outside of their shul walls, but also, also within them. And I think if they do that work, it takes time. It definitely, you know, takes time to change people's experiences, to, to change the way that people speak. But I think it definitely can be done if you are just committed to doing it. I don't think it's a change that's going to happen overnight. It's not a change that's going to happen in a week. It's definitely something that's going to take a year, two years to really just make sure that when a Jew of color walks into this space that they feel welcome and included. And one, you know, one congregant who doesn't know can change all that. And it definitely will take 
the community really sort of getting behind it and wanting to do their work. I think it's definitely, you can do it. I think it just takes some work and it's definitely not something you can put a Band-Aid on and fix. And, and it's not going to get solved in a Freedom Seder. It's not going to get solved on a Shabbat talk about Martin Luther King. It's definitely going to have to be a 365-day commitment to do it. And it definitely can be done. Yeah, so folks who are listening to this who'd like to uh, engage with a lot of the issues we're talking about, you can go to the Jewish Multiracial Network website, which we'll post in our show notes today. And you can also follow the Black Gay and Jewish blog that Erica runs. And Erica, is there any other things you'd like to uh, direct people to while you have the opportunity today? In terms of like things that JMN has, we have a lot of resources on our website that are free. And I think one of them is the White Ashkenazi Jewish Privilege Checklist. And I think it's just something that an individual person can read and be like, okay, wow, I've said those things and I didn't realize that they were terrible things to say. But it sort of allows an individual person to self-reflect as opposed to me pointing my finger and saying these are the things you're doing wrong. Um, you know, JMN has, while we're based in New York, just because of where our president lives, we have people who are part of the organization all over the United States. And those people are more than happy to go talk to congregations, talk to rabbis, talk to community leaders about actions that those communities can take on to be more inclusive places. So I think definitely there are lots of resources on the JMN page, and there are lots of JMNers all over the United States. And actually, there's some in Toronto as well that I just ran into recently online. So there are definitely a lot of JMN folks throughout the United States and very happy and open and willing to help communities do that work. Great. Thanks. Thanks so much for taking the time to have this conversation with us today. It was really awesome to talk to you guys about this. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. Trafe Podcast is Sam Bick and David Zinman. Today's episode was recorded at CKUT in the shadow of the giant cross of secularism on occupied Ganegahaga territory. Thank you to our director of design, Claire Hertig, and to Sax Syndrome for the music that you heard on this episode. All articles we've referenced can be found in the episode notes. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr at Trafe, T-R-E-Y-F, or send comments and suggestions to trafepodcast at gmail.com. The easiest way to follow this show is by typing in trafe to a podcast app. Alternatively, you can find us on Stitcher or iTunes. More episodes of the show soon. Been a lot of attention given to a man named Steve Mann. Oh, I shouldn't say a man named Steve Mann. It's like three mans. <laughs> Why am I having so much trouble with this guy's name? I don't know. It's so simple. Yeah.